0: necessarily taught how to type in any kind of formal setting. I know I wasn't. It was an elective you could take growing up. And so uh, this is something that's unique to this generation and probably all the generations coming after for a while, uh, that we're going to have to learn how to type. We want our kids to learn to do that. And so we got a little program that they have on the kid's laptop that they uh, have to just continue to drill. And they just go over and over and over, and they play the little games to try to type out the little letters and the phrases in order to learn. And we're teaching them that in order to get good at this, they have to develop muscle memory. They have to do things over and over and over again. And you know that this principle is true in lots of different mechanical things in your life. Muscle memory will help you. You don't think about how uh, which pedal to push when you want to go forward or when you want to stop in a car. You just do it because muscle memory takes over. But as much as it can help serve us in many different capacities, muscle memory actually overrides some of our faculties of thought. So let me, let me demonstrate that by this. You may be able to type 45, 60 90. Maybe some of you can type 100 words a minute or more in here. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you could do that here. But let me ask you this real quick, just right off the top of your head. Just think this answer to yourself. What hand and finger do you use to type the letter Y? Now, if you're like most people, you're probably, in your mind, having a little virtual keyboard. and you're, You might have even done this with your fingers in order to find why on the keyboard and which finger you'd use to press it. If you're like most people, that's likely that's the case. And the reason you had to actually think especially hard about which hand and finger you use to press Y, even though you do it a thousand or 10,000 times a day, perhaps, is because your mind clicks to autopilot when you type. And you overlook things. You overlook details that are right in front of you. This is the way that this tends to work. When our brain shifts to autopilot, And muscle memory takes over. It can often cause us to overlook things that we would normally notice if we were paying closer attention. I think you guys know that principle and how it applies. But that can happen with Bible reading too. We can become become so familiar with some passages with some themes or doctrines, even on occasion some very specific verses, that when we read them, our mind clicks into autopilot and we glide right over. We kind of coast past familiar verses without taking stock of the real meaning there. We, we assume we know what we're reading, what we see, when in fact we could be missing some really important things. I was asked this last week how sermon prep was going, because today we're going to be in one of the most familiar verses in the entire Western world. It's John 3, 16. That's what we're going to be covering today, just a part of that verse. My answer was, you know, this is more challenging than many other verses, and not because I feel compelled to dig up some new challenging things you may not have seen from there. I have long put to dead in me any desire to try to find something new. I want old truths that have been established, and your mind just needs to be reminded by all the time. But it was hard even for me a little bit to kind of look at these passages and make sure that I wasn't assuming things to be present. And so we're going to go through John 3.16 today. I was planning actually to go through a few verses, and as the sermon prep carried on this week, it became evident that we're going we're to get through about half of this one verse just today. And the reason is because I want to try to override some of those autopilot tendencies that I suspect might be in many of your minds because of the familiarity that we have with this common verse. So we're going to point out some words, dig into their meaning, and we're going to ask some questions about this verse that uh, you may not have considered in the past. We're going to look at this verse as though we've never looked at it before. And so if if this is the first time you've ever looked at this verse or really considered it, great, We're, we're all going to be on the same page as we go through this, and I hope that it will serve us well. So I'm just going to read our text today as I usually do. I'm just going to read John 3.16, then pray, and then we're going to begin unpacking that verse. So you can go ahead and follow along with me. Look at the words. I'll read it nice and slow, especially for this passage today. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, this verse, at least the reference for this verse, may be the most common and familiar one in our Western world. Even for those who don't know the verse itself, we can look in the stands behind virtually every set of end zones and football and see someone holding a sign with this emblazoned upon it. We can see this written on t shirts and bumper stickers and luggage and printed on wallets. And Lord, we know that this verse is referenced by many people. And I suspect that many uh, who are here within the hearing of my voice today might even be able to recall this from memory, probably very likely can, in one. A translation of the Bible or another, Lord, depending on how we learned it. And that's all for good reason, Lord. We love that. We love that this is a familiar verse because it contains a succinct summary of the gospel that is so true, so critical for us. Lord, we don't want our muscle memory to help us coast over these words. So I ask that you'd help us to dig into it and perhaps a little different level of intensity than we have in the past, and ask some questions about it, learn more about it, so that it would be even more meaningful in our lives. It would aid us even more in our understanding you and ourselves, that it would aid us even more in loving the lost and fulfilling the Great Commission. So, Father, use this awesome verse we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. I'll read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we did not today just handpick this verse out of the Bible. We could have. It's a wonderful verse. Could have done that, and it would have been a great time altogether. Uh, I've been preaching through the book of John for months. Uh, last week, we, we saw John 14 and 15. Today, we land on 16. So, just, this is just providentially where we've landed today. And the very first word that we see in this verse is the word for, for God so loved the world. That for is there for an important reason. We know the reason why we'd use the word for it. It connects the incoming thought with what preceded it. And luckily, if you've been with us for any period of time, you know we've already kind of covered what's come before. But for the sake of context, let's just make sure we're all together on the same page. These are the words of Jesus. Early in his ministry, he's speaking to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. He's telling Nicodemus the most important things you could tell somebody. He's not going into some frivolous doctrines or some interesting uh, points, rudimentary points from the the far distant past in Israel's history. No, no, No odd debates like that. He comes right out of the chute, Jesus does, without even hearing a question from Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus what a man must do in order to be Able to enter the kingdom of God. He must be born again. And he unpacks that a bit for Nicodemus. By the time we get right up to this verse, Jesus actually points back to an Old Testament passage. He points back to a time when the people were in the wilderness with Moses, where Moses had lifted up on a pole a bronze serpent, and the people, many of whom had already been bitten by snakes and were dying from the venom infecting them, needing a cure, they'd cried out to God, they'd looked at this serpent on the pole, they would immediately and miraculously be cured. An interesting episode in Israel's past. And Jesus mentions this story, and he compares that serpent being lifted up on a pole with himself. He even says, so must, just as, the, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so he compares himself with the serpent. Whoever looks to Jesus to be saved will be saved. Just like whoever who was dying from that venom looked at the serpent would live. Jesus here explained that salvation, eternal life was the language there, salvation is through belief in Him, in the Son of Man, in Him. It's not just salvation, it's it's not just belief in His miracles. Nicodemus said at the beginning of this passage, he believed in the miracles. He saw the miracles, he knows that must be from a man who's come from God. He's already said this, salvation does not come in believing in Jesus' miracles. Salvation does not even come in believing in Jesus' teaching. It sounds like at the very least, Nicodemus is at least open to the teaching of Jesus. He's inquiring, asking questions. Maybe challenging, but it sounds like something's going on there. And yet, just believing the general teaching of Jesus or finding some level of wisdom or truth in it is not sufficient. Even that does not grant a person eternal life. No, no. Jesus says that a person needs to believe in his death. Namely, that his death would save. Whoever looks, believes in the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, believes that they need to be saved, looks to the cross for salvation, that person will be granted eternal life. Believe in eternal life. That's what he says. That's what just precedes. This famous John 3.16. That was the last thing he said. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The next word, for. So you see this is now connecting that, right? The for here is introducing an explanation or reason for what Jesus had just mentioned. In other words, verse 16 is telling us why God offered his son. Why A person can have eternal life by believing. And what's the answer? Why? For God so loved the world. That's why. This is the point of the verse. The point. The point of the verse is to explain God's motivation for offering eternal life through belief in Christ. That's the point of this verse. He already said whoever believes in the Son, whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. We'll say that again at the second half of John 3.16. So the reason for the verse is to establish why things worked that way. Because he so loved the world. That's why. I want you to consider this thought with me here, okay? God was not compelled by any force of nature. Not by any force of utility to institute the plan of redemption. There was no universal law over the Creator that required that He provide salvation to His creatures at all. Let alone by faith. He did so because of His love for the world. This was not obligation. This was not duty. For God owed it to the world. No. It's not what motivated this. For God so loved the world Why would he put his son on a cross? Because he loved the world. That's why. God was compelled not by anything outside of himself, but by something inside of himself, namely love. He was not compelled by anything outside, only by what's inside. This is so important for us to realize. I want you to really unpack this with me. I want you to think harder on this one. God is not bound by anything but himself. That's it. He is only bound by himself. That's it. If God makes a promise, he is bound by something because it's his oath, it's his word. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, he says that when he bound himself to Abraham in a promise way back in the Old Testament, he bound himself in an oath by his own name. Why? Because there's nothing lower than him that he could bind himself to. He can only bind himself to himself. There is no authority greater. There is nothing higher than him. There's nothing at all outside of him that can make him act. It is not as though if God did not do this, if he did not provide a plan of redemption, a way for us to be saved, if he didn't do it, then we could get together as a mass of humanity, get in our little huddle, figure out, yeah, yeah, we'll, let's, let's tell him, let's do it, and then turn around and say to God, hey, this is unfair. You owe us some way out. We couldn't have done that. We cannot bind him by anything outside of himself. He is under absolutely no obligation intrinsically, whatsoever to save sinners. No obligation at all. You know, sometimes we have legal authority to make demands on other people. You know this, don't you? In fact, you even have legal authority over those who are higher in authority than you. Your boss, your boss, if he tried to undercut you, not pay you what you deserve, just didn't cut you a check when payday came, You could take him to court. You could sue him. Wow, how does that work out? Because he has an authority over him. And so you can go to your boss and be like, I'm going to sue you. I don't care if you're my boss. I don't care if the paychecks come from you. Uh, We're going to take the money from you. You're going to be fined. You could go to jail. All manner of civil penalties can take place. How does that work out? How does that work? Because he has an authority over him. Wives, the, the Bible tells us that you are to submit to your husbands, that they are given authority over you. But the Bible also says that a wife may make demands on her husband in particular categories. Explicitly in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that a man's body does not belong to himself, but belongs to his wife. She has authority over his body. It's incredible. This means, wives, you can demand fidelity. You can, you can make that demand upon your husband. You can demand Provision. Demand protection. Those are things that a husband is supposed to provide for you. That's the way that that works. And if he didn't, you'd have recourse. You'd have a way to deal with it. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, even if we were to try to make demands upon God, let's say we were to try to bind him to something higher than himself, we were to try to do this. Let's say that we imagined some law, universal law, that was higher than God, that was over him, something that he had to subordinate himself to, how could we enforce it? What could we actually do to make him pay a penalty? Could we threaten him with anything? And the answer is, no matter how you cut it, God is never obligated to us. As the creator, never obligated to the creation in any way except for through his own promise. He is only compelled by what is inside of himself. I want you, the whole Bible testifies to this repeatedly. We are creation. He is the creator. He owes nothing to us. Everything is already his. Job 41 verse 11. This is an especially helpful one regarding this idea because Job is a man who incurred greater loss and devastation than anyone in this room ever will. He lost all of his children in a single day. All of them died. One day, all of his property, all of his possessions, all of his hard-earned wealth, everything gone. Even his physical body was crushed. He literally, in pain, would scrape boils and and the, you know that itchy kind of feeling. That's one of the worst feelings that there is, isn't it? He, he used pot to scrape his skin because every part of his body was just an utter, an abject misery. Even his own God, his own wife is saying, "Curse God already and let him kill you." Clearly you're an enemy of him. He hates you. Just push him across the edge and finally die. His wife, his wife, who's already lost all of her children, is like, please, you die too. Right? It's intense. And Job cries out to God, and even his best friends gather around him, and they prove to be no real good friends at all. They begin judging him. Well, Job, this must be because of you, man. And he cries out, are you are my friends. You come here... In my worst moments of my life, I could possibly experience something. You, even you are gone? And he finally cries out to God and he shakes his face. God, why, why, why? Do you know what God answers? Job 41, 11, he says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. That's God's answer. He gives a, he gives a chapter's long answer here. God's summary is, I don't owe you anything. I owe you life, relief from pain, wealth of prosperity. I owe you nothing. Everything under heaven is already mine. You get that? Job, even in that pain, cannot obligate God. You, you owe me God. No, nope. I owe you nothing is what God says. What an intense truth. David says the same thing in Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12. He's speaking, uh, kind of prophesying for God here. God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. You have nothing that's not already mine, God says. You can't give me any gifts. You can't provide anything to me that doesn't already belong to me. Romans 11, Paul says the same thing. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You can't give God something and put him in your debt. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Acts seventeen twenty five. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see this repeatedly all throughout the Bible. We've got nothing. He has everything. Even we are his. That's the way that it works. He's the creator. We are the creatures. This could be really, 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 really bad news, except God so loved the world. God gave us everything, every good thing that we have, everything, and we spat in his face in sinful rebellion. Yet God made a way for rebellious sinners like us to have peace with him, He he provided it. He just gave it to us. How? By belief in the substitute death of His Son, Jesus. But why? And that's the question that's being answered here. Why did God provide His Son that we can have eternal life? Why did He do that? Because of His love for the world. There is nothing stronger than that. There is no impulse. There is no force in all of existence that is stronger than the will of God. Absolutely none. God moved. God acted. God was stirred up to carry out a plan of redemption by the strongest force in the entirety of the universe. His own will. Namely, His love. God, driven by love, was unwilling that the whole of the world would be lost to Him forever. I want to say that again. God, driven by love, was unwilling, using that word intentionally, unwilling that the whole of the world would be lost to him forever. Now think for a minute. This is a big world. It's full of a lot of sinners. That's a lot of love. I don't know Nicodemus's heart. None of us do. We don't know what's going on inside of Nicodemus. I don't know how loving he was. We do know a bit about the Pharisees more generally, don't we? And they didn't have any love in them. And they feel a bit, a bit strong language, but we see repeatedly them proving their lack of love for other people. They would use people repeatedly in order to make themselves look good, over and over and over again. In fact, they would, in, get this, in order to try to judge the sinless Savior of the universe... They would use cripples and beggars and hurting broken people. They would use them. They did not care if this crippled man gets healed in this moment. They're tricking Jesus into working on the Sabbath. That's what they did. Repeatedly, they did this kind of thing. They'd bring someone broken before Jesus and they'd be like, hey, this is going to be great. We couldn't care less what happens to this dude. In fact, fact, we want Jesus to heal him, not because we care about that guy, but because we want to get Jesus. That's what they said. And so, they Concocted plans repeatedly. Jesus even called them out repeatedly on the same account. He goes, you know what? You love your own sheep and donkeys more than you love this man. Because if your sheep or donkey were to fall into a pit on the Sabbath, you'd go and get them, wouldn't you? You won't even have the compassion or pity needed to care for the life of this hurting person. Jesus calls them out on this all the time, repeatedly. John chapter 9, in a few chapters, we're going get, to get there eventually. There's a man born blind. Uh, he's, he's, he's standing in the marketplace. The disciples see this, and it's cool because the way that the, the chapter lays out, one of the very first ways we see this man is the disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? Because clearly somebody had to sin for this to have happened. And Jesus said, it doesn't work like that. Neither of them. This is not a result, a direct, direct, straight-line result. Ah, oh, they sin so blind, kid." Nope didn't work like that. He goes, "He's blind that the glory of God may be revealed in him." And Jesus restores this man's blindness to sight, gives him what he never had. He was born blind. a full-grown adult. He's given, given sight. And then the Pharisees find out about this, and instead of rejoicing, there's one less beggar on the street because now there's a blind there's a blind man who can see. Instead of rejoicing that the pain has been mitigated and finally that this man can see finally for the first time in his life, they go, bring him in here. Bring bring that man in here and we're going to figure out what went down because we want to get Jesus. And they go after this guy and he, he just gives the greatest testimony. He's like, I was blind, now I see. Tell us about the man. I don't know. I don't know nothing about him except I was blind, I met him, now I see. That's all I got for you. They start getting angry at him. Do you know what it says about that man? Not even about Jesus. It says about the Pharisees and that man. They reviled him, it says about that blind man. Now now who can see? The the newly seeing man. They reviled him. They hated that man. Because he was walking proof that Jesus was sent by God. You can kind of see their true heart later in that story when they they say, you were a man born in sin. You deserve, you deserve to be blind, and now you're not. They're all upset about it. They have no compassion in their hearts. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this of the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is not, this is not the broken-hearted minister who's crying for their lost people They go, Oh Lord, please help them. Help them. Show me how to serve and how to help them. It is judgment, judgment. It is putting heavy Work laden burdens on shoulders and being unwilling to remove them. I'm not touching them. I'm not helping them. It's dirty, rotten sinners. It's awful wickedness. The Pharisees knew nothing about love. They didn't even love God. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says to them Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Their hearts were filled with hatred. They did not even have the basis and the most primitive form of love for others, compassion. And pity they pointed us out in the past but when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross they didn't go oh God please cause him to repent now he's wrong we think that he's wrong he's not really a son of God please let him now repent maybe, maybe that will restore his soul and maybe others will hear and then not be led astray by this Jesus of Nazareth Lord please, please in compassion break his heart no, they mocked him on the cross in his bitter misery That is wickedness to scoff at a person who's being tortured. I don't know if that was Nicodemus, but I know that was his ilk. How could they possibly, how could Nicodemus possibly have understood the depth of what Jesus is saying? For God so loved the world. This is not compelled out of duty, not compelled out of obligation, no higher law. You know I've never loved anyone in my life the way that I love my wife and my children it's the purest love that I have. I love you all as a church i've not loved you nearly the way that I love them and what I mean by that is I have the sacrificial love for my wife and kids and if you're a if you're a if you're a parent you can think this about your kids if you're a if you're married you might think this about your spouse men you may You may, with the kind of violence that's built into our minds, might think of it even at the level that I oftentimes do. I would—I think I can say this with a high degree of confidence. I would joyfully accept torture in the place of my wife or kids. Remember before having kids and before being married, thinking like, how can you love somebody that much? Like You might do it out of duty, be a tough guy. I'll do that kind of thing. No, 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 I'm, I'm saying skipping and dancing and whistling and singing out of gratitude and joy that I get to be tortured instead of them, right? You know what I mean? And even there, even with the family, that I think that the most beautiful sound in the world is them laughing. The most wonderful, wonderful warmth is joy in those people that I love so dearly. And yet, my love for them is so tainted with sin and selfishness and pride and impurity, and folly. That's that's true of all of us, isn't it? The greatest love you've ever felt for anyone else is nowhere close to the love that God has for sinners. Nowhere close. His love is holy, pure, and perfect. All other love that we can ever feel or experience from us to another is mere hazy reflections of the true love of God. That's why Psalm 36, 7 says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Some of your translations would say, how priceless is your love, O God. And yet, in order to understand what's going on, we have to ask another question. That unconditional agape love that's spoken of there What does it mean, though, that God so loved the world? The world. Who is it that He loves? Who is the object of His love in this verse? Here's here's what I mean by this. The word world can mean a number of different things, both in English and in Greek. It can mean a bunch of different things. And so we have to ask, what did Jesus mean when He said God so loved the world? There's at least five different ways you can can see the uh, definition of love with the same Greek word for cosmos in the New Testament. And, and even just in John, there's, all, there's actually more than that probably. There's at least five different definitions you have to mind through and then ask yourself, well, which of these ones did he have in mind? The first is the, uh, as an obvious one, physical earth. Cosmos, it's the same word that we use for cosmos today. It means the material universe, physical thing. Trees, rocks, sand, stars. That's one way. This could be used. Another one, systems of ungodliness. This is used all the time by Jesus. The world hates you, the world hated me. That's talking about the systems of godliness. Sometimes the word world is used by Jesus to refer to unbelieving humanity. He says this, in, uh, for example, in John 14, when he says that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth, for it does not see him or know him. So sometimes it refers to unbelievers, unbelievers very specifically. Other times, the word world means believers, believing humanity. Like John the Baptist uses it when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does Jesus take away the sins of non-believers? No, he does not. He takes away the sins of believers. That's how it works. You believe, you have eternal life. How? Because your sins are now paid for in Jesus. Belief ends in eternal life. Get that? So is he has he taken away the sins of the unbelieving world no that means the believing world so sometimes it can mean that and lastly the world can mean all humanity all humanity in a general sense every human every image bearer of god from adam to the present every everyone who's ever lived so the question i'm asking here which of these definitions did jesus have in mind because it really will matter is Jesus saying, God so loved the trees that he sent his only son? No, because it's clear what he, who, who he's, he's talking about, people kind. That's going to come up later. Is talking about, sist- oh, God loves the sinful systems of the world? No, he hates sin. as is said repeatedly. Unbelieving humanity, believing humanity. You might not be surprised to find that there are a handful of different uh, answers to this in history. I'm not going to unpack this a lot right now. I'm just going to tell you what I think it is. And in future weeks, we're going to see this unpacked further. I think what Jesus has in mind is all humanity. I think that's what Jesus means. Every human who's ever lived. I think that's what he means here in this text. And for the record, this in no way tramples on any other doctrine. J.C. Ryle um, is a commentator who wrote on this particular passage. I, I, I found his summary here where I've arrived as well, and I thought he worded it in a helpful way. I'll read this to you. I believe in the electing love of God the Father as strongly as anyone. I regard the special love with which God loves the sheep whom He has given to Christ from all eternity as a most blessed and comfortable truth and one most cheering and profitable to believers. I only say that is not the truth of this text. And I'd agree the same with him. In other words, we know Many other places in the Bible, God does not love everyone in the same way. He does not have the same kind of love for everyone. We know this. There's a kind of love that God reserves only for those who love Him. John will even tell us about this later in chapter 14. Jesus says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. See, that's a a transactional, that's a conditional kind of love. There's something going on there. We will unpack this in the future. But God loves the elect in a special way, in a way that he does not love the non-elect. We'll see this in Romans chapter 9, uh, which will reference Malachi chapter 1 in the Old Testament. He says this simply, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. No matter what you do with those words, well, it doesn't mean hate. It doesn't mean love. Whatever it means, He's distinguishing between a kind of love for Jacob and something very different for Esau. That's the whole point. So yes, it is true that God has different kinds of love for people. And this is something that we understand, we should understand very clearly. You may be a very loving person. You may love all the children on your block. But if you're a parent, you love the children in your own house with a different kind of love than the kids outside your block, or outside your home on your block. You may even be willing to sacrifice for them. You may even have the kind of love that you're willing to die for your neighbor's kids. It is not the same kind of love. It's not. It's an altogether different type. We will cover this more in future sections of John because we're going to see this repeated, this idea coming forward. But this verse, this verse here, among others, establishes the universal love of God for the whole world. The universal love of God for the whole world. I'm going to quote John Calvin here who said about this exact verse, he says, the heavenly father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. That's a great summary. I think that's what it's being said here. What I want to do in our remaining time is just give you five implications of the universal love of God. Five implications of it. There are dozens, but we're just going to hone in on five. And they're even somewhat related, mostly. Five implications of the universal love of God. First is this. God loves people who hate Him. God loves people who hate Him. There's a kind of love God has for even those who hate Him. A universal kind of, John 3.16 kind of love for image bearers. You remember how Jesus commands us to love even our enemies? Yeah, God does that too. God loves His enemies too. God loves Nicodemus. God loves the other Pharisees. Pilate, Herod, even Judas. There is a kind of love that God provides even for them. And one of the ways we could even know this more clearly if we struggled with understanding how this works is because we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 tell us God, that God says, love your enemies. And what's the very example he gives about God's demonstration of that? Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Get that? So he's saying the provision given by God to the atheist is a demonstration of his love for the atheist. That's what's being said there. Yes, God loves people who hate him. He loves your New Age spiritualist brother, He loves your uh, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Mormon neighbors. He loves even your militant atheist co worker. His love for the world is without condition. We don't have to do anything to earn or deserve this kind of love, and so we can't do anything to remove it. This kind of love cannot be removed because we're wicked. More often than not, this universal or unconditional love of God is not returned, it's not reciprocated. When a person is deprived of love, when a human, like you and I, when we are deprived of love, it leads to all sorts of distress. You know, this mental, physical, emotional distress. But God is the source of all love. He does not require that his love be returned for him to function properly. He doesn't get embittered. Okay, fine. You don't want to love me? Fine. No more universal love for you. It doesn't work that way. The seasons come and go. Provision and blessing comes and flows. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, continues going. In fact, do you remember what God promised after the flood? Remember this, Bible folks? After the flood happened, um, he he put a rainbow in the sky as a symbol. What was the symbol for? No matter how much they sin, I won't destroy the world again like this. Why does he say that? Because they're going to keep on sinning so much that you're going to go, when's it coming? And I'm promising you, no matter how bad it gets, until the end of human history... Never going to do it. And for the record, never going to do it with water again like this. That's the point. It's not, now the people will sufficiently be good enough to not deserve the wrath. No, I'm just promising you. And he puts a rainbow in the sky. And you know what that bow is? The bow in the sky. It's literally the same word for a bow, like a bow and arrow. It's the bow facing up for the arrow to point into the heart of heaven. He incurs wrath on behalf of the world that he loves. If you struggle with loving people whom you felt hurt by, Draw near to God. He knows what that's like. Living in a world of hatred for God and His Word, it can be hardening, can't it? It can really harden our hearts. You watch the news too much, you probably shouldn't. It's just going to anger you. It could, it could embitter you. Maybe you. Fill you with kind of a rage in your heart. Maybe even a righteous fury and anger. We need to lean into God and remember God even shows love to His enemies. We need to draw from the well of God's unconditional love. That's, that's the first implication. God loves people who hate Him. You and I can too. Number two, God only judges what he loves. This is very related, but listen to that. God only judges what he loves. So which of the people that God will judge in the end, at the, at the, at the white-hot throne of judgment, when the books of the deeds come out and people are judged according to what they've done because they didn't believe on Jesus, when they're judged according to their deeds, how many of those people will he have loved? All He's not giddy going, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I've been looking for a time to judge and punch. No, there's a love that is also there as well. This means that God is not a cold and indifferent judge. His judgment on a wicked world is not stoic. When Jesus flipped the tables in John 2, one chapter before this, he did so not because he had no love in his heart left for the robbers around him, making that place into a den of robbers, no, that's not true. And this is really hard for us to understand. It's, really hard. it's even harder for the world to understand. In the midst of cancel culture, that God can and does have genuine love for the very people he will condemn. Literally, two verses later, in John 3, verse 18, he says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. So condemnation from God is given to the very ones, it says, for God so loved, here in verse 16. You see, many people look at the Old Testament, and they see pictures of God, and they see his judgment, and they go, man, he was so angry back then, we finally got a loving God in the New Testament. This is wrong for so, 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 so many reasons. First and most obvious is the New Testament covers a span of about 30 years. That's it. A single group of people just around the Mediterranean Sea, mostly Israel right there, in a little, that's all it's covering, one generation And the entirety of the Old Testament is generation upon generation upon generation upon generation, thousands of years of history. Nations coming and going, building and dying, and wars, and everything, all of this. And so for us to look at a giant swath of history, thousands of years, and to see people come and people go, nations rise, nations fall, we go, oh, he's so angry then. God was just as loving in the Old Testament as he is in the New. He was just as gracious in the Old Testament as he was in the New. Many people see the anger of God and they think there's no way that judgment and love can coexist. That's false. You better believe it exists. Judgment and love coexist in God every moment that we live. If you're a parent, you know what this feels like, right? Because you've had to spank your little kid's butt. And why is it good for you to spank your little kid's butt? Why does the Bible command that? Why is that so important? Because your kids have to learn that from those who love them the most, mommy and daddy you care for them, nurture them, provide for them, protect them, also will show them discipline for their good. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 3 and in Hebrews 12, that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. It's an act of love to discipline. And the parent who does not spank his child, it says, does not love his son when he spares the rod. That kid's going to grow up and think that every time he runs into a hardship, God hates him. Teach your kid, teach your kid to love God and to feel the love of God even during hardship. Third, God loves you even when it doesn't feel like it. That's what you teach your kids when you you discipline them. God loves you even when it doesn't feel like it. Some think that God does not love them because they see the hardships they have to experience as proof. He doesn't love them. There's the proof, all the hard stuff. If God really did love me, why did he let me go through X, Y, and Z? Oh, really? Do you think that God loves His Son, Jesus? How did His life work out? Don't you see? People see hardship as proof that God doesn't love. But the chief evidence of God's love for the world is that He sent His only Son, whom He loves most, to die, to experience hardship and trials and wicked torture. Don't judge God's love for you based on your experience of hardship. Our world doesn't even know what love is. You see those love is love signs that are meaningless. They're utterly meaningless. They mean nothing. You can't, no one can define that. They don't know what it means. The Word defines what love is. All only true and perfect love comes from God. That's it. The only way that anyone can love anyone in any way is because God gives love even to those who hate Him. But our world says that if you say or do anything that makes another person feel uncomfortable, that's proof you don't love them. Because judgment, condemnation, anything that makes me feel bad is proof I'm not loved. That is so false. We can experience this in God first. Fourth, God loves us before we ever love him. You can tell every person you ever meet, God loves you. When I moved to Utah, we started a ministry called God Loves Mormons, and we knew what that name meant. God loves Mormons. How? I had two reasons in mind. The one was I believe that this is true. It's a universal love for the people of this world. No matter what background they're from, what faith they're from, you can say with full confidence to a person that you're running into, God loves you. How do you know the proof is He sent His Son? That's how we know. We know He loves you because He sent His Son. That's exactly what Jesus says here. We love because He first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. We love because He first loved us. God's demonstration of love for the world is Him sending His Son. And more so for the elect. It is true, more so for the elect. That God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we, believers, while we, the elect, were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's also true. That's true at another level. We'll be getting there in future weeks. But God leads us in loving first. He leads us in loving first. Do you love any unbelievers in your life? Do you love any probably non-elect people in your life? That is people who will never believe in God. Do you you love any of them? Yes. Do you think you love God more? Do you love people more than God loves people? Your, your love hits more souls than God's love? No, that's not true. God leads us in loving first. This is the kind of love that drives our missionary efforts. Before my wife and I moved to Utah, we'd never been to Utah. We'd never stepped foot in here. We didn't even know anything about it. We just felt the Lord had, and I, this is the way I describe it to people, God had just opened up our hearts, put in love for Utah, and namely Mormon people and put it in our hearts, and just close it up. And I know it's uniquely for Mormon people, because there's a lot of people I can't stand. I can't stand. Someone knocks on the door, I want to share their faith, it's a Mormon, I come in! It's a Jehovah's Witness, I'm like, just go away, I don't want to be. I just have such a heart for the Mormon people. Why? Not only to me. God has opened my heart, put that love in. My wife and I had love for the Mormon people before we ever even knew one. We're trying to explain it to people. Only Christians can understand it. Oh, you love the Mormon people. Name one. I don't know. What do they look like? I don't know. Can you imagine a face or a name at all? No. Do you love them? With all my heart. We loved you before we arrived in Utah. Before we met anyone. How does this work? Because that's the kind of love, universal kind of love, that God has for the world. To be sure, God knows everybody. God doesn't have to have an ambiguous love. Ours is a little more ambiguous because of our imperfections, right? But this is what drives the missionary endeavors. When brothers and sisters throughout history have gotten onto a boat to sail around continents and overseas, potentially put their life at risk to go share the gospel to lost peoples that they have a love for who they've never met. Because just as God loved first, they love first. I love them before I've known them, before I've met them, before I see them. You and I can do this. You and I can love an empty house, praying that neighbors who will eventually inhabit that house next door to us will come to saving faith in Christ, and we'll be able to have a front row seat in that conversion in some way. Yes, you and I can draw upon God's love in that. God loves us before we ever loved Him. Lastly, number five here, and again this isn't thing. this is just the five we're talking about today, implications of God's universal love, this. God's love for the world, you know this, but you need to hear it stated clearly. God's universal love for the world does not produce salvation. It does not produce salvation. It is ineffectual, salvifically. It's designed to be. It's not like God was trying and failed. That's not how this works. It was not intended to produce salvation. This means that no matter how amazing and powerful God's love is, if a person will not believe in Jesus, that love will do nothing for their eternity. Hell will be filled with people who have been loved by God. This kind of universal love is not a saving love. You can have this kind of love from God and not be saved at all. Here is why this matters so much. There will be people who will feel love from God, and they will be right. Their business will thrive. Rain will fall on their fields. Uh, They may even pray for a child who gets sick and goes to the hospital. And maybe not because God promised to answer the prayers of non-believers; He actually doesn't. But just because of his kindness, just because of his love for the lost, his provisional, unconditional, universal love, the child will survive. And that person can then think, ah, God must be pleased with what I believe and think. Therefore, I am His. You get it? You get how how dangerous that could be. And for another believer to come along and go, well, that's not God's love. Well, that's actually not true. It, It actually is God's love. The provision actually is the love of God. It's a universal kind of love. It is not a saving love. This is why you're going to have charlatans who call themselves pastors all over the place these days, coming out of the ground like a stirred-up anthill, proclaiming false things as true about gender and sex and kids and abortion and all manner of godless wickedness And because they're observing some things that they see as good in their life, and they even maybe rightly are seeing that as in some way the blessing and love of God, they go, therefore, I must be proclaiming what is true. I must be honoring God. I must be one of his false. Judas received more love from Jesus in a practical, physical sense than you and I often have. We didn't hear, we did not get to experience sermons from Jesus other than written. We do not hear His voice. We don't know what Jesus smelled like or how tall He was, that look in His eyes when He's talking to you. We don't know those kinds of things yet. Judas did, all the while hating Him. Pharisees thought they were loved by God as well. They were given prominence and respect and influence, sometimes prosperity. God was not pleased with them. We ought not let our circumstances Try to determine in our minds our peace with God. We must trust His Word to do that. If you're not a believer today, this is what you need. All the blessings you've ever received in your life, they are in some way a blessing from God. Be grateful for that. But your salvation must be in Jesus alone. You must believe on Him, that Him going to the cross, being sent by his father to go to the cross after living a perfect life that you and I should have lived and and then bearing penalty for sin is the only way you can have peace with God is to look upon him and be saved. That's it. Realize your fallen state. Look to him for salvation. It is your only hope. If you're not a believer today, that's what we want for you, to believe on him and so be saved. And just as he was raised from the dead three days later, you too will have resurrection of life. You'll have new life, eternal life, forever forever with the Lord. This is what we want for you. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we read through this passage, it's, ooh, it's challenging to think about the way that you view the world. It's challenging for our hearts. I, for myself, I can definitely say, God, I have not even begun to love the world, the lost people of the world the way that you have. Lord, give us a taste of that. Help us to remember that uh, we we receive a double portion of your love if we are adopted children of yours, Lord, please strike our hearts, help us to help us to learn how to just be overflowed, filled with the source of all love, you, God, that it would flow out of us to others, that, that would be the, that would be the chief emotion and feeling and choice in our life will be just love for people around us, Lord, undeserved as we are. Teach us that Lord from your word in Jesus name. we pray amen.